Hello and welcome to Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Oleggi. And I'm Peter Lim. And it is our pleasure to welcome Dr. Chima Koria to the podcast. Uh, Dr. Koria is Associate Professor of African History at Marquette University in Milwaukee. He graduated with first-class honors from University of Nsukka, uh, Nigeria, and with a PhD from the University of Toronto. Uh, after earlier graduate work in Helsinki and Bergen, Norway. He was a 2008 British Academy Fellow at Oxford and a Fellow of the African Studies Centre in Leiden in Holland. His publications include The Land Has Changed, History, Society and Gender in Colonial Eastern Nigeria, published by University of Calgary Press in 2010, and some 10 or more edited books, including The Nigeria Biafra War, Genocide and the Politics of Memory in 2012, and works on the history of women, slavery, and minorities in Africa, to name just a few. His articles have appeared in such esteemed journals as the Canadian Journal of African Studies, African Economic History, and History in Africa. He is also editor of the recently uh, launched Ebo Studies Review of the, Afri- of the Ebo Studies Association, In addition, he was awarded a British Library Endangered Archives grant for digital preservation of the Enugu and Calabar archives in Nigeria. Welcome, Dr. Gloria. Thank you very much. It's uh, very good to be um, here at Michigan State. Well, it's a pleasure to have you doing history in Nsuka in eastern Nigeria and then Helsinki and Bergen and Toronto, now Milwaukee, your veritable globetrotter. Uh, did you always dream of being a historian? How did you become one? I think if you were born in Africa, many African uh, village, you know, uh, you basically become a historian because uh, somehow life and um, living and livelihood is all shaped by, you know, history, oral history in, in particular. But in my own case, I think my choice to be a historian was shaped uh, very early in life. Um, when I was very young, I was going through my father's uh, uh, collection of photographs. And it was very intriguing to find among these collections um, the photograph of the Queen of England visiting Nigeria. There were also photographs of uh, Dr. Namdi Azikiwe um, and some other local politicians. And uh, it was very, uh, I just wondered why my father would be collecting. Um, these photographs. Now, um, but it, it did occur to me that, you know, it did present uh, some aspect of the life of uh, Nigeria and Nigerians in the colonial period and the sort of the contradictions that uh, existed between the empire and subject peoples. And I, in, in a way, it was what fascinated my, um, you know, me and my interest in looking at uh, the history of that relationships. And, and my desire to study history. Another element that I, I heard today when you gave uh, your really fascinating talk to the uh, African Studies Center Eye on Africa series, you let slip at one stage because you were talking at some length on petitions in World War II written by ordinary Nigerians, traders, housewives, and so on and so forth. You actually mentioned that as a, a young boy in the village, this would have been in Baise, I guess, you were yourself a letter writer, and a lot of these petitions that you were talking about were uh, dictated 
to professional letter writers. So perhaps that experience of being a letter writer in elementary school may have also perhaps uh, inclined you towards historical studies <laughs> or literary studies. <laughs> yes, I, I think uh, um, in, in, in many respects, if you, if you grew up uh, in a village like, like, uh, like I did, where a lot of men, women did not have formal education, could not write to their sons and daughters abroad, and if they trusted you, uh, you become really an important person in the village. And uh, um, letter writings and was one important aspect of that. Um, in, 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 in many respects, uh, I think I didn't really think deeply about the role of the letter writer or petition writer as they did emerge. But my historical uh, uh, studies of Eastern Nigeria, particularly um, from the beginning of the 20th century did show that uh, letter writing and petition writing were really important in terms of how local people dial, you know, um, related with uh, imperial officials. The sort of dialogues going on between colonial empire officials and subjects people was fascinating mm. um, in, in many respects. So... Um, I used part of those petitions in my, in my earlier book on the land has changed in terms of how local people responded to several policies were, that were put in place. But also, um, it was fascinating to look at how they were extensively used in the 1930s and 1940s, especially during the Second World War, which is the subject of my next book. Well, let's turn to that now, and we look forward very much to that book. And you gave us a a snippet of that today with your discussion on petitions during the war. Um, and I've done some work myself on political petitions in South Africa, but you've brought in ordinary people uh, and have collected a staggering number of these petitions. Um, and you talk about this in your article in History in Africa. Um, and it's clearly, uh, they're clearly wonderful primary sources for the historian. Um, and coming back to your earlier book, uh, The Land Has Changed, you, you make these uh, connections between complex agricultural and, and social changes in southeastern Nigeria um, uh, with political struggles and colonial hegemony, again, bringing in this local dynamics and local responses, uh, regional dynamics. Can you talk to these um, themes of petitions and socioeconomic change? I mean, today you talked about traders and the hardships faced um, in Nigeria during World War II. Perhaps for the listeners' sake, you could elaborate on these themes. I think it's difficult often to uh, understand how African and societies and men and women responded to major policies during the colonial period mm. because uh, very few of them kept diaries or there are very few autobiographies. And, but they are very uh, important sources that can speak to those local reactions and responses to major colonial policies. And petitions are, uh, uh, are very important uh, sources that we can use to gauge you know, those responses. I have used them when I did you know, the book on The Land Has Changed. Because uh, um, if you look at it historically, some of the most important 
uh, processes, processes through which African societies were transformed were through the transformation of agriculture and agricultural practices in the colonial context. And for Eastern Nigeria, those sort of changes began much, much earlier, even before the colonial period. The production and sale of palm oil and palm products were important uh, from the period of the abolition of the slave trade. So, so the, the idea of the transition from slavery to legitimate trade or commodity trade were important. And, and the voices of local people have been sort of difficult to really uh, understand, um, except if you look at some of these evidence that have they have left um, through petitions. But by the 1930s, I think, petitions became really a very important way uh, that local people used to address their concerns. Um, and they ranged uh, from petitions against uh, 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 tax collections and tax rates, petitions against court cases, and, and, and uh, supplications, you know, um, uh, appealing to local officials to um, address some of their con conditions. Uh, and most importantly, the petitions relating to the imposition of control, price control, um, restrictions in terms of where people can trade uh, during the Second World War. And that is where I am concentrating now. And foodstuffs too. Yes, and, and foodstuffs, particularly gare, uh, which is processed cassava, and uh, palm oil, uh, as well as yams. Yams. And so uh, in your talk today, you, talk, you gave examples from these petitions um, of traders, market women, who were complaining about the hardships as far north as Kano. And obviously this was all part of the war effort by Britain. But um, you also spoke about the way in which this was raised in the Nigerian press. And so obviously um, this was a position where a lot of Africans were hurting in World War II, as well as that soldiers were going off to war. A lot of Nigerians fought in Burma. So what can you really draw from the petitions that's, that's different? What sort of voices do you get in these petitions? I think um, if you look at African participation in the Second World War, a lot of emphasis has been placed on the role of African soldiers. Um, but little emphasis have been, has been placed on, uh, on the role of uh, men and women um, in what is often known as the home front. In terms of the production of, of goods, um, minerals, mining, their labor to support the Allied war effort. So my book is, is looking at uh, the role of, of uh, these ordinary citizens in the production effort to support you know, the British and, and the empire as, as a whole. And, and an important way to understand these dynamics is uh, to look at how they responded to the peculiar policies and, and, and programs that were put in place you know, in, in order to garner support for the war. Of course, the British and the Allies faced a lot of crises as soon as uh, they lost some of the um, you know, East Asian empires. So Nigeria became a very important um, area in terms of uh, gathering the resources, manpower to support the British war effort. 
But those those policies and programs were put in place uh, in in the context of uh, um, you know uh, diminishing um, economic opportunities and and how to gather those those, those uh, sort of support um, involved the implementation of new programs and including uh, new measures and, and control, including the selling of foodstuff and other materials at price, you know, fixed by the government. Second was restricting where local people could sell their produce, including yams and, and cassava, in order to ensure that there was enough food available to feed the army. Uh, third was to ensure that those who were involved in the trade had obtained a permit from the local district officer before they could engage in trade. And that, in, in, in many ways, disrupted, you know, the sort of existing local and regional trade within Nigeria. The response of the local people was sometimes to appeal to the government to um, address some of those concerns and, and their conditions, um, which in included disrupting their livelihood, disrupting opportunities which um, existed in the society uh, for trade, and then um, to deal you know, with the food crisis, which was affecting individuals as well as the urban areas, as uh, the restrictions uh, um, did you know, affect uh, many, many, many of them uh, in places like Aba, Onisha, um, as well as those who lived uh, in the north, who to a large extent depended on the supply of important food stuff from the east. But those restrictions meant that uh, those uh, you know, food items were not able to freely move to the north as uh, um, they used to be before the, the, the war. This clash between colonial agendas and African interests and lives comes out very nicely in your book, The Land Has Changed, uh, History, Society, and Gender in Colonial Eastern Nigeria. There's been quite a lot of work on uh, Nigerian gender history and women's history. Uh, for example, our colleague uh, Wando Achebe has written quite brilliantly the narrative of the life of the woman king, and that's just one case. Uh, how does your book, uh, for example, looking at agricultural change, uh, address this uh, gendered life in Igbo village societies, this sort of female sphere and the male sphere, and, and how the interaction between colonialism and African agency transformed those? Yeah, I, I think if you look back into the history of uh, gender relations among, you know, the Igbo of Eastern Nigeria, for example, you, you have uh, a very clear evidence of what is often, you know, called uh, the dual sex political system, in which uh, relationship between men and women was much more complementary than that of, uh, uh, you know, male superiority and female, you know, uh, inferiority. And I think, you know, like you mentioned, uh, Wando's book really points to the dynamics, you know, of, uh, of uh, and the unique uh, position that women in Igbo society occupied. Now, um, my book sort of addresses the gendered nature or the Victorian gender ideology which the British brought into Eastern Nigeria. Because uh, uh, to a large extent, they had this conception of the men 
in the agricultural policies, they had this idea of the male farmer. But to a large extent, they ignored women who were central to the agrarian society, both production, their labor, and marketing of produce. So uh, what I try to emphasize is, is that uh, uh, to a large extent, colonial policy ignored the local gender dynamics and the central role that women played in the production system. And the emphasis uh, placed on training the male farmer, training farmer's sons, ignored actually those who were central to the production system. But it is also interesting to, you know, look at Eastern Nigerian women uh, in terms of the unique position that they occupy. If, if, you, if you look at Nigeria in the 1930s, the Igbo women were the first group of people to actually uh, protest and confront the colonial system in, in what is often now known as the 1929 Women's Revolt. And, and that revolt, which many British officials regarded as an anomaly, led to the, uh, the first uh, commissioning of uh, uh, um, an anthropological study of African women to really think about what makes this group of people unique among the women in other parts of the world. And, and the outcome of that, of course, is the book uh, Igbo, you know, I mean, African Women, written by Leith Ross. So there is something unique about Igbo um, or Eastern Nigerian women. But what I think is lacking really today um, is an important study of the dynamics and, 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 and structure of women's role in society from below. And of course, of course, it's important to look at you know history, the history of elite women, but we still lack a sort of a general study of women and their peculiar role in society from below. I, I, th I think that is what is lacking. And my work has always tried to use gender as a framework of analysis because you can understand some of these issues and or these petitions, for example. There were a few of them written by women. And those written by women, you know, have a different voice in terms of uh, the message they tend to convey. And we can understand sort of, you know, issues of self-assertion, um, relationship between male and female gender, and how these women portray themselves in their own voices, you know, um, within, uh, within these petitions. Maybe we could t uh, turn to the Biafran War, on which you've also written several books, and 50 years or more after the war, how are Nigerians, and uh, especially Igbo people, coming to terms with the war, and uh, how might historians contribute to, say, understanding better its causes and, and its effects? I think the history of, of the Civil War uh, is still is still to be written. We don't have a comprehensive you know, history of, of the war. Certainly, unlike many other countries that have uh, gone through the same um, uh, issues Nigeria has gone through, Nigerians have tended to sweep under the carpet the conditions and forces and factors that led to the war in the first place. And I think the failure to address those concerns um, has left the post-war period still a very problematic, uh, you know, 
society. Certainly, we look at the war in Nigeria. It was the first black-on-black violence. Uh, I mean, genocide. More than 3 million Igbo people died before the war, during the war. And, you know, the policies that were put in place by, by the Nigerian government really did have a lot of effect in the psyche of the Igbo people. And what they feel is their stake in the, you know, nation state that is called Nigeria. Now, 50 years after the war, the conditions that led to the war are still there. The, the, the issues of ethnic, you know, nationalism, the idea of the Nigerian state is still to be defined and redefined. There is a, there is a national conference going on in Nigeria today. But uh, the opportunity to discuss the nature of the Nigerian society, the relationship between the different ethnic regions to the nation itself is not part of the agenda, which I think is a very big mistake. Many other societies that have gone through you know, traumatic events like South Africa, you know, at the end of the war, or the genocide in Rwanda, you know, they are often post-crisis reconciliation uh, agenda. But in the case of Nigeria, that has never been the case. The civil war is not even taught in Nigerian schools. It's not part of the curriculum, as if that didn't happen mm. in the country, which means, uh, you know, the, the politics of memory, uh, the politics of the war is an issue. And I think, I think many, in many respects, uh, it, it is the Igbo people who, in, in some respects, you know, writing about the history. But we need a balanced sort of view of the war from every side of the country, right? But you can't do that in the context in which many feel that the war is over and people should get, a, you know, get on with their lives, which I think is a, is, a very, is a very big mistake. I'll tell you a very short story. Now, this book, this particular book on the Biafra War was accepted to be published by the Universal Calgary Press. It had gone through the review process. It was sent out for external review. Uh, two reviews came in. One was excellent. The other was basically telling the press that the names of the, of the contributors we're all, I mean, we're basically Igbo people. And uh, Calgary was interested in understanding, you know, why there was not a balanced sort of view. But I think my response to that was, was that you don't have to look at the ethnic origins of the contributors, rather the, the content of, of the book itself. And that uh, is basically like insisting that a book on the Holocaust must contain, you know, a German author. And I don't think that is right. So... Um, it, it shows you the politics of, you know, the war and how it's sort of uh, actually evident in the process of uh, publications of materials on the war, even outside of Nigeria itself. Obviously, the person who reviewed the book was a Nigerian who understood the ethnic names of the contributors. Of course, there was somebody from um, a contributor from Australia. There was a contributor from Ireland. And... Uh, but in a way, it shows you how the war is still a very sensitive issue for many Nigerians. It's very interesting, this question of ethnic affiliation and national allegiance, because in Chimamanda Dichie's new novel, Americana, the protagonist is an Igbo woman, 
named Ifemelu who emigrates to the United States, and she tends to refer to herself as Nigerian in the United States, but she also struggles to retain the nuances of the Igbo language while abroad and recognizes that, that she's uh, an Igbo. Um, there is an Igbo Studies Association. Uh, you are on the board of the uh, Igbo Studies Review Journal. Um, and yet, you know, it's hard to think of a single Igbo nation uh, in such a fragmented and highly localized uh, history and culture. So um, is there such a thing as the Igbo nation? And, and, uh, or, or, or is it an imaginary that, that comes back because of these politics of forgetting and because of the migration and so on and so forth? Yeah, I think, I think the question of Igbo identity has always been, you know, a debated issue beginning from, you know, the period of the slave trade. Indeed, you know, um, if, if you look at some of the early publications uh, about enslaved Africans, uh, there, there were those who had argued that, you know, people from the Bight of Biafra didn't share a common identity. Um, so they didn't call themselves Igbo until they were outside of their homeland. And that issue, I think, is, is still important today in terms of how people identify themselves and how identity is fluid depending on the context in which you are, you know, applying that identity. If I was within Igbo land, obviously I would identify myself from the locality where I come from. I would be Mbaise, I'll be, you know, Ekwarazo, I'll be Ihitafuku. Once outside of Igbo land, I can identify myself as Igbo because I'm working in a different context. So, the, you know, that sort of dynamic didn't mean that people didn't understand there was something like an Igbo people who share a common language and who sometimes share, you know, common culture and, and, and way of life. But uh, the emphasis on an Igbo identity is often, I think, applied outside of Igbo land itself. And so today, you know, people have multiple identities. My identity as Igbo, and, uh, you know, which is uh, for many people who are very nationalistic, particularly in the post-Nigerian you know, post, uh, you know, war period, there, there are a lot of people who still identify themselves as Igbo and who want to give up their Nigerian identity. But, but so uh, as a Nigerian in, in, and as an Igbo in, in the United States, I think the person you mentioned, you know, in Amanda's, I mean, Chim Amanda's book is, is, I mean, applicable to many other, you know, Igbo Nigerians because they see themselves primarily as Igbo within the context of an Igbo organization. They see themselves as Nigerians when they are in the broader context so that other people can identify that, you know, they are also from this geographical entity called Nigerian. But it's a complex, uh, you know, uh, dynamic, you know, one in which, uh, you know, f for example, in my family, my, my daughter identifies as, as Igbo. She speaks Igbo because some mother will always say, you know, you don't do this because this is not the way the Igbo people do stuff, right? So uh, those sort of identity dynamics, I think, is important in how people take up different identities, but also how others identify them.
Just to completely change track and, and perhaps start bringing our fascinating conversation to a close, I think we could go on for, for quite some time. Uh, I want to make two points. One is that the listeners have heard various references to your talk at the African Studies Center here at Michigan State. You can actually view uh, that talk on the website, ionafrica.matrix.msu.edu. Or if that's too long for you, just Google Korea, K-O-R-I-E-H, and Ion Africa, and it will magically appear on your screens, the video of the presentation. The second point has to do with digital history, which we do quite a lot of here at Michigan State in, in African Studies in particular. And uh, as Peter Lim noted earlier, you won a British Library Endangered Archives grant for preservation in Enuhu and, and Calabar. Um, can you tell us uh, about the role that these digital sources play, not just in Igbo history, but perhaps in, in African history as a whole from your perspective? Yeah, I think, I think many archives in in, in Africa face a lot of challenges. Uh, the challenges of uh, preserving the materials that are already there, the challenge of funding, and uh, you know, the challenge of uh, you know, having the suitable environment to preserve these materials. Um, I had worked at the Enugu archives and as well as those in Calabar, you know, most of my, my life. And uh, it, it, was, it was really troubling that sometimes you go back to the archives and the material you used the previous year is no longer there or is turned to pieces. So, you know, um, because of age, many of those materials are going to be lost. That was what really increased my desire to see what I can do to help the local archives, you know, which I have used in, in the past. And I did apply for the British Endangered Archives, you know, program and did a got a grant to do a preliminary study of what is available there, the sort of uh, the scope of the materials, what is needed to preserve them, and the sort of strategies that can be used to, to, to preserve them, the costs and, and, and equipment required, which I did. So um, I wrote a report, but unfortunately, there's a clause in the project which, may, you know, which stipulates that a copy of the materials has to be placed in the archives or the library in Britain. Many of those in Nigeria were concerned mm -hmm. about the possibility that copies of these materials will be placed in London. And, and, the, and the fact that, you know, over, over the years, people may never even bother to come to the archives in Nigeria if they are available in London. Mm -hmm. So for bureaucratic, you know, issues and the main project never took place. But I think, I think, uh, it's important to find other ways through which these materials uh, can be preserved because uh, we're going to lose them. Uh, the one at Calabar, the materials are all, you know, sort of littered in, in a room. They, you know, they are not shelved. And uh, the conditions in some of these archives, you know, is very appalling. Uh, but I'm hoping that people can recognize and realize that uh, preserving this, these materials for posterity is, is very important so that they are also available to historians who want to study this area uh, in the future. Whether it's going to be a collaboration between the local archives and, you know, the Nigerian government and some, you know, um, individuals to find the funding to do that, you know, perhaps will be an important strategy to adopt. And related to this is a more contemporary uh, problem of uh, more recent archives not even being deposited 
or more recent papers not being deposited in some African archives. And so this might speak to political sensitivities and worries. Um, is this also a problem in, in your experience? Yeah, I think it's a problem if you, if you go to these archives too. Most of the materials you have were those kept during the colonial period. Uh, for most of the polo, you know, post-colonial period, you don't, you don't have a lot. Um, most of these files are not you know, deposited in the archives. Of course, you can understand uh, the central role for, for many you know, in the colonial period, you know, the central role preserving archives and materials you know, played in the colonial system. But the post-colonial system is one in which I think for political reasons and for, for you know, uh, other reasons unknown, many of the dictators in Africa are not going to be willing to preserve these materials because they will come, you know, probably come back to hunt them. So you have, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the lack of uh, access to post-colonial materials in many African archives, you know, thanks to the political crisis and dictatorship that has defined the politics in recent times. And you're referring specifically to written documents. Yes. Now with the arrival of electronic records, uh, the problem becomes even more complicated in many ways. But that's perhaps a discussion we can have another time. Well, it's been really enjoyable having you here, Chima. So uh, thank you very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you very much. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.